Good morning. I know it's the 4th of July weekend, I guess they call it, so there's not a lot of us, but it doesn't matter how many, we need to um, learn the Bible. Okay, I'm, I'm going to begin with prayer. All right, we're going to pray. Dear Lord, thank you for the fellowship of the saints, for the word of God which you've inspired, which is inherent and sufficient and infallible. And may we look into your word and learn and grow in our faith and knowledge of what you've said, who you are, and what you've done. Help us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we got still have one verse left in chapter 13. Chapter 13 has more information about the preaching of the apostles and what it was like. One of the longer sections of Paul's sermons. So we have spent quite a bit of time on it. But I want to deal with this summary uh, because it really isn't just tied to the uh, Pisidian Antioch. It was something that would really be thematic throughout Luke Acts. Acts 13.52 And the disciples were continually filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Now, one of the things I'm doing while I'm teaching Luke Acts is trying to help whoever listens to these Bible classes learn uh, how Luke wrote and for all of us together to become good readers of the Bible in general and Luke Acts in particular. And Luke is very good at introducing themes that in the beginning of Luke, and then bringing that theme up here and there, and then again bringing it up in Acts to show that this is exactly something that we need to know and it's important about what God was doing in the context of Messianic salvation. So here, after the preaching and a mixed response, some received it, some opposed it, and as I think I was saying last week, the opposition came from both Jewish and pagan sources, and the positive response came from both Jewish and pagan sources. There was always a mixed response, but some people believed and received the word with joy, and others became irate and opposed it, and some were relatively neutral, and, well, we'll hear you again about this matter, and went on. So I have some material that recounts all that all the way through Acts, but I won't do that because I think it would take more time than would be helpful in the bigger scheme of things. But I do want to unpack this idea of joy and the Holy Spirit. Those two are mentioned. They're both very important. And one of the things that we need to know is that one of the signs that the Holy Spirit has come and people are filled with the Spirit and people have received Messianic salvation by faith and that is that the joy of God is happening. One response that must happen because it's just innate to the whole thing is that joy accompanies salvation. And why does it? Because it's only right that it would. We know that joy is a fruit of the Spirit, but we also know that 
because Luke Acts, which is what we're focusing on, portrays salvation as going from darkness to light, from the dominion of Satan to God, from sitting in darkness to receiving light, is that if you've ever been stuck in darkness and then you find light, it's re- of course you're going to be filled with joy. And if you escape Satan and find eternal life in Christ, why wouldn't you be filled with joy? And this isn't artificial joy. This isn't uh, drummed up by getting a really talented band uh, that can get everybody all excited. I'm not against people having joy when their team wins the World Series or you have a great parade on the 4th of July. There's a lot of things. It's, It's not something that we can say can only be part of this, but there's something more profound about the joy of salvation than any other sort of joy. Because the team winning happens and you have joy, but then the next year they might lose. And it's all temporary, it's all temporal. But the joy of salvation is eternal, so that puts it into another whole ontological category. Okay, so joy is mentioned in Luke concerning the Messiah, the coming of Messiah. And let me read that. I have it right here. Luke 2, 8 through 11. I have it on my notes. And in the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over the, their flock by night. Luke 2, 8 to Luke 2, 9. And an angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, by the way, when angels show up, the mo- a typical response is fear. And if it's, and the angels will often say, don't be afraid. So here's what it says. The angel said to them, do not be afraid. For behold, I bring to you good no- news of great joy. There's our theme, which will be for all the people. For, in today, for today in the city of David, there's born for you a Savior, Christ the Lord. So now we see a theme. The Messiah is the son of David. Therefore, God is keeping his promise to David. Do you have somebody? Yes. Um, I'm just adding to the joy that comes with salvation and how I've been always so impressed with Paul and all the problems that he had, physical problems and that, and yet throughout his writings just always exude joy. And, and it's, yeah. not, it's not dependent on f- our physical problems. Absolutely. That's the great thing about the joy as a fruit of the Spirit and then joy as something that accompanies salvation is it doesn't go away when you have problems. And I think that's one of the reasons we need the fellowship of the saints as a means of grace, that in other words, the means of grace are corporate things. The Lord's Supper is a corporate thing. The teaching of the word needs to be done corporately because when we come together, we share the same joy. It's true for me. No matter what, when I see the saints, things get better immediately. Absolutely. And uh, I thank God for the fellowship of the saints. So at the very beginning of Luke, 
with some shepherds. By the way, we may have romantic ideas about shepherds, but that's not how they were seen in that culture and context. Shepherds were perpetually unclean. Okay? Their duties were such that they were considered unclean. They were not able to keep the ceremonial law the way they should. And they were not going to be uh, seen favorably in the context of pharisaical piety. I don't know if you knew that, if you ever heard that before. Have you heard that, Terry? Yeah, you'd heard that. And so it's interesting that shepherds are mentioned here in Luke 2 about David, the city of David. And so God can use a shepherd. And uh, we see that Jesus comes in, in the New Testament portrays himself as the good shepherd that lays down his life for the sheep. So the idea of the shepherd under the new covenant takes on a whole new great meaning uh, that we need to appreciate. But we're talking about joy. Now someone um, could read uh, Luke six twenty-two to 23. Did anybody look that one up yet? Got it, Eric? Oh, Oh, okay, we got it over here. I can do it too, whatever. Okay, blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and insult you and scorn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. Be glad in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for in the same way their fathers used to treat the prophets. Right, so Jesus told disciples in Luke 6 to rejoice when they're persecuted. And so that teaching is found in Luke 6, but when you read through Acts, that's very pertinent to the passage we're looking at because hostility against the gospel had already arisen. And so they're continually filled with joy. So the world is hostile to the disciples, but the disciples are filled with joy. And Jesus told them to be, to rejoice. Because so um, were treated, the true prophets were hated and rejected. Okay, does that make sense? Okay, so also, also we rejoice even if we're persecuted. Now we're going to Luke 10, and we're going to talk about what is an appropriate cause of rejoicing and where there might be danger lurking. Very interesting section to me anyhow. I hope it is to you too. I'm going to read to you Luke 10, 17 to 21. And the 70 returned with joy, there's our theme, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Uh, Luke 10, 18. And he said to them, I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions 
and over all of the power of the enemy, and nothing will injure you. <clears throat> Nevertheless, verse 20, do not rejoice in this. Notice there's a, a warning here about rejoicing in the wrong thing. Uh, yeah, I, I hope you've turned to that if you have your Bible. You want to know this section. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you. Uh, I bring this up because the issue of spirits comes up in Acts as well, along with joy and so on. <clears throat> that the spirits are subject, subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. Verse 21, at that very time, he rejoiced. There's our term for joy again. He rejoiced, only in a verb. Great, he rejoiced greatly in the Holy Spirit and said, quote, I praise you, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this was well-pleasing in your sight. If I remember right, I think the Greek there is eudokia. Uh, somebody can correct me on that if they have their Greek open. But so there's an issue of what is an appropriate and, and good response that causes joy, which is the presence of messianic salvation, and where we might be rejoicing in the wrong thing. Now, the disciples were rejoicing the demon, that the demons were subject to them. Now, the point in Luke X is that demons being defeated and Satan being defeated proleptically, I'm going to say, we'll get to that, is a sign that Messianic salvation has come on the scene of history. And one of the key verses that you got to know, if you're going to say Luke X, you have to know Luke or Acts 26, 18. That those that come and repent are brought from darkness of light, from the dominion of Satan to God. And so when you repent, when you turn, and you go from darkness to light, from the dominion of Satan to God, one of the things that's true is that it's become certain that your name is in the book of life. Right? If you stayed under Satan and refused to listen to Christ, it stayed in the darkness, and it talks about in the New Testament people preferring darkness because their deeds are evil and they hide from the light. If all that was the case, you don't have any reason to think your name is in that book. Is that correct? So the rejoicing needs to be about messianic salvation, not me having the kind of power that frankly in their world, and yet again today, is worth a lot of money. You can get rich even in America today by having power over demons or at least getting people to think that you do. And I have literally interviewed people that have contacted me over the internet who had spent a lot of money on professional exorcists and curse breakers who claim they're doing what they're doing in the name of Christ. And they're not rejoicing about anybody's name in the book. They're rejoicing about their power and their ability to fill up their bank accounts. And so I've had to help a lot of people 
who are harmed by fake deliverance ministries. And I have to tell people that if you want to be delivered from the dominion of Satan, you must turn to Christ through the gospel because the issue is that name being in the book. Adam, you just got here. We're in uh, Luke 10, 17 to 21. Uh, what we rejoice in. And uh, not what kind of power you have now. Because we see that kind of a thing go on not that much later here in Acts when you have those sons of Sceva. We adjure you by Jesus and Paul preaches go out of him and the, the demonized guy beat up the would-be deliverance people. And so uh, you have Jewish sources like Josephus talking about how they did deliverance. They used, they, in some ways it's almost like the Catholic Church, they had their incense and they tried to draw the demons out through the nostrils. Josephus talks about that kind of stuff. So what we want to learn in this verse is that this joy of the Spirit that is accompanying Messianic salvation is essential and sine qua non, I guess you could almost say. It's without which not. It's, it's what salvation always is. If there's no joy of salvation. Uh, Adam, you weren't here. I talked about the shepherds rejoicing at the advent of Messianic salvation and the theme of it in Luke X. And so whether we feel good or we're happy or not, all Christians have the joy of salvation. It's a fruit of the Spirit. All Christians' names are in the book. All Christians, if they're going through a lot now and they're really sick and they're really hurting and everything's horrible and you can't just put on a fake smile, I understand that. I know what it's like, but it doesn't change the fact that the time of rejoicing is at hand. And when the role is called up yonder, as the old song went, uh, and I'm there, and I see the literal reality of the final division of what judgment's going to be like. Eric talked about that as he went through Revelation. There'll be nothing but rejoicing for those whose names are in the book. Eric, feel free to comment about the book and the names if you think of anything I didn't. Okay, so um, what is this thing here? Now, what everybody wants to know about this passage in Luke is what is going on with this He's, when he warns them? Uh, don't rejoice in this. I was watching Satan fall from heaven like lightning. Now, it's amazing how the false teachers take that and say, we have to rebuke Satan and get him out of heaven. If we cast out the demons, we're casting Satan out of heaven. Eric, being how you're the revelation expert, what is the issue with Satan in heaven, and when exactly does he get cast out of there? Yeah, what's interesting is we see that in Revelation chapter 12, that if we, if we think about G- Jesus defeating Satan, it happens in stages. So, for example, when Jesus dies on the cross... Satan is depicted in Revelation 12.10 as the accuser of the brethren. So he accuses us day and night, but when Jesus dies on the cross, those allegations that were lawbreakers before God are muted. Why? Because Jesus took upon himself 
the full measure of God's wrath on our behalf for those who believe. So at the cross, Satan is defeated in the sense that his allegations against us, they won't stick. But then in Revelation 12, it depicts that one day within the 70th week of Daniel, the last seven years, Satan, there's going to be a battle in heaven that we won't see, but it's revealed in Scripture, and Satan will actually be cast down to earth. This is why you have what's called the Great Tribulation at the midpoint of the 70th week of Daniel. Well, at that point, he's going to influence Antichrist. There's going to be the greatest persecution of all time. But when Jesus returns at the end of the 70th week to set up his millennial kingdom, what does he do with the beast? And what does he do with Satan? Well, the beast and Satan are bound. They're locked up, yeah. And, and Satan is bound for a thousand years. Well, then after the thousand years, he's released again for a short time for that battle of Gog and Magog. One last battle against Jerusalem. That's where Jesus calls fire down, devours them, and then Satan's placed in the lake of fire. So at the cross, Jesus goes up, up, and up. He's raised from the dead. He's ascended on high. One day he's going to have the kingdom. But at the cross, Satan goes down, down, and down. His allegations don't stick. Then he's going to be thrown down to the earth, and then he's going to be locked away in the abyss, and then he's going to be thrown in the lake of fire forever. So the cross is the crux. It's the center point of history. Jesus ascends. Satan only gets worse and descends. Eric, thank you, brother. Wow. Let me cite. So in that context, now let's try to unpack this Luke 10, 17, 21 into context of our study of Luke Acts and the mission of the disciples that continues after the ascension. Joel Green has, I thought, a, a good commentary. I use it a lot when I was preaching through Luke. He also understands narrative unity like Tannehill does. Here's what Joel Green said. Certainly the mission, or excuse me, the, certainly the success of the ministry of exorcism by the 72 does not presuppose the downfall of Satan. Rather, their mission presupposes only what Jesus claims analeptically. Now let me explain some big words here. Analeptically means having to do with what went before, and proleptically has to do with what will happen. Okay? So before, analeptically, it said he'd been given them authority over the demons. It set them on their mission. Why? Because this is a sign that Messiah is on the scene of history. The Jewish exorcists according to Acts and Josephus, weren't that successful. All right, let's go on. Namely, he had given him authority over all satanic forces. Green says Luke portrays Jesus as having a prophetic vision then whose content was future, the future and ultimate downfall of Satan. That's what Eric said. <clears throat> Presumably scheduled for the time of judgment, to which he alludes in verses 12 and 14. He says such a view is consonant with Second Temple Jewish text, but Jesus' view in this Lucan co-text pushes beyond the content of those. The decisive fall of Satan, says Green, is anticipated in the future, but is already becoming manifest through the remission of Jesus and by extension through the ministry of his envoys. And so... There's a process to this, but what is decisive is that when Jesus 
died on the cross, as Eric said. He paid the penalty for sins. Um, what does it say in Revelation, how they overcome the accuser? By the blood of the Lamb. He accuses us before God about our sins, and we escape by substitutionary atonement. And then he's forced to try to accuse Jesus, and that doesn't work. The sinless Son of God, the eternal, the eternal second person of the Trinity who came into our world. And so Satan accuses, the escape is through the blood atonement, the blood atonement is received by faith when we receive the gospel and believe the gospel and come to Christ. And I noticed here Tannehill in his two-volume work, The Narrative of Unity of Luke-Acts, talks about that, talks about this thing in Luke 10 and um, about receiving decomai. I love that word. It means to welcome. He talks about decomai apodecomai, paradecomai. Those are used more in Luke X, these terms for welcoming than all the rest of the New Testament. So Luke uh, is writing a two-volume work. One of the key, crucial, watershed issues is welcoming or rejecting. Receiving or not receiving. There's also synonyms. It's not always using the Greek word decomai. Sometimes, uh, Eric, Greek people, help me out. It's uh, paralabano. Yeah, paralabano, to welcome to yourself. Somebody like uh, Zacchaeus welcomes Jesus in. The, The ones who you wouldn't expect. Jesus goes to a meal with a fancy religious leader. And the religious leader is offended by the woman who comes and weeps at his feet. And it turns out the religious leader had done all of the wrong things to show rejection to Jesus. He didn't even do the common courtesy of anointing his feet and the things that you would do. This woman who was despised by the Pharisees and Sadducees, she's despised she is prophetically doing what they should have done but didn't. And he told her her sins are forgiven, however many they were. Dear ones, God welcomes sinners. But the terms don't change. You have to come through Christ alone and believe the gospel and turn to him. Turn to Christ and believe the gospel. Accompanying that Reality is forgiveness of sins, escape from the dominion of Satan, and your name is in the book. We can argue about how long they've been in there, but that's not really the point. They're in there, you're saved. If they're not in there, you're lost, right? And now you have the joy of salvation. That's all in Luke Acts. So we're either rejoicing because we're in light and freedom and forgiveness and the accuser is cast down or we're still under bondage. That's the either or. That's those who welcome Messiah 
if they're unclean, if they're despised, if they're nobody, it doesn't matter. He receives them and gives them eternal reward. Those who reject him are lost. So that's what's going on here. So in the context, as we finish the end of Acts 13, there were people who believed, there were people who rejected, there were people who rejoiced, there were people who hated, and they would drive Paul and the others out of town. We'll see this all the way through the book of Acts. Now we actually get to go to another chapter. See, I may go slow, but I do make (laughs) progress. Chapter 13 has been there for a while. We've been in it. Now, Acts 14, we go to Iconium. Acts 14, one, now it happened that in Iconium, they entered together into the synagogue of the Jews and spoke in such a way that a large number of both Jews and Greeks believed. Again, this has been happening before. Jews believe, Greeks believe, but then there will be those who did not uh, do so. I have the Greek here. Is the way it says in the Greek, agneto became from ginomai. So that's kind of how they talk. It became, came into being. This is the way it was. In Iconium, this is karataata. It means by the same, according to the same, which is not how we would say something, according to the same. But that is simply referring to that's a pattern. Typically, according to the same, they would go first into the synagogue. Why? Well, because in a new city, he had a place where people were gathered. They had the scriptures. They had the basic categories because they're all already in the Old Testament. They knew that the scriptures predicted a Messiah. So why not go there and tell them that Jesus is the Messiah you're reading about in your scriptures? And plus, according to the same, you have the pattern that Jesus established back in Luke when he went into Nazareth, into the synagogue, and the scriptures were open, and there was Isaiah, right? And uh, he said, today this scripture is fulfilled in years. We've looked at that quite a bit. So they're doing like the master and going into the Jewish synagogue. Now, that would get various responses, but then it would reach out because there were God-fearing Gentiles who would gather with the Jews, attracted to their monotheism and their moral way of life, and then it would go out to the, the pagans in the city in general. So according to the same means that this was how things would happen. I have some, I'm looking at my notes here. Oh, guess what I have? A picture. This is a map of the area. Pisidian Antioch is where they were. And Iconium is where they went. Obviously east and a little south. And this was what happened. Now it's interesting, I've mentioned this before, in God's providence, the timing of the coming of Messiah 
into human history corresponded to a situation that was very amenable to the gospel being rapidly spread. God's in charge of history. Did you know that? And I hope you understand the doctrine of providence. But because of the Roman system, which was rather advanced in their ability to rule different territories with relative civil order, some of the problems that got the Romans involved was the fact they didn't want disorder. So they had different ways they did that. But not only did they have an orderly governmental system for the most part, they had a language that was understood by most people, Greek. It came from the Greeks, obviously. And a system of travel. I've showed you, what do I got here? I guess I just have that. Um, uh, The caption on this one is, but they shook off the dust of the feet against them and went to Iconium. Yeah, I'll read the what I have in my notes that came with these pictures that I bought a whole big DVD full of. Iconium was southeast of Pisidian Antioch, about 90 miles distant. The modern city of Konya preserves the name. So here is how that looks. Now imagine now they don't they have to go 90 miles. That's a pretty good journey when you don't have kind of transportation we have. But, they, but it was reasonable to do so because of the Roman system called Pax Romana. It, was, it wasn't as dangerous as it might have been in some other era of history. And it was possible to do. And so Acts, really, you see a lot of use being made of the means available to bring the message around for a lot of people to hear it. So that's what that's 90 miles that they went. It would take me a while to get that way on foot. In fact, I don't know that I would get there. But so it, be, so it was. Now, this is very important for us to understand God's providence in history that all of this actually happened. And so as was their normal way of doing things, they went in to the synagogue and <coughs> preached. I thought uh, Schnabel, I found this commentary recently, bought it from my logo system. It's very good. If I hear about a good commentary, I tell people, because I'm glad when I heard in seminary what the good ones were. is very good. He says this, quote, Paul did not pick specialized audiences, but now he's talking about what had happened in Pisidian Antioch, but proclaimed the gospel to anyone who was willing to listen, whether they were educated or uneducated, powerful or disenfranchised, freeborn or slaves, men or women. Of course, we know he talks to the Jews and the Greeks and in the old city. Back to Schnabel. While specialized ministries to specific groups have advantages, Missionaries, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, says Schnabel, should never forget that the good news of Jesus Christ needs to be proclaimed, explained to everyone who's willing to listen without exception. When I was in seminary, 
the specialized thing was coming in like a windstorm. And I just kept fighting it and fighting it as a student sitting there, because one thing we got to do was debate ideas. And I said, I, we need to preach the gospel to everybody. Why do a marketing survey and find out what people in your neighborhood would like in a religion and then try to portray Christianity as being what they like already and then try to get them to be religious with a Christian banner over their head? Why not just tell them up front the terms of the gospel? Isn't that what the apostles did? Well, it was interesting when I would say, I said that over and over at the time I was a pastor in our building at the time was in the inner city on 24th and Nicollet, Minneapolis. So I never knew what we were going to run into. And sometimes it was very hostile. But they, they never tried, it's interesting, they never tried to refute what I was saying biblically. But what they would do is they'd bring in people there were the speakers at the conferences. Bill Hybel, for example, was brought in. And we had to read um, Rick Warren's book, The Purpose Driven Church. And they just kept putting all this out there. And then the, the, the hook for the students was the success stories. The success stories, why? Targeted. Uh, whatever. I think I told you last week about the one we visited. They targeted children by having the most fun, exciting children's program that it would be more fun to go to church than go to Valley Fair or whatever. And you do that every Sunday. And then the children dragged their parents to church and then they went from a few hundred to 2,000 by doing that. But that's what Schnabel is rightly questioning. Uh, because the problem with that is if they start preaching the gospel, it'll offend the parents and they'll just go to Valley Fair and forget your church. Yes. Yeah, you know, I just, just the last, you're trying so hard to get through and we finished Acts 13, but I think back to exactly what we looked at, Luke 10, 17 through 21, what Jesus told the disciples that they should rejoice over. It's like they, they didn't, they forgot that or something. Amen. Do we rejoice at how many showed up? Or do we rejoice that names are in a book? Good point. Rejoice is the wrong thing. So they went in and began to teach where they already had the scriptures and they had common concepts that could be preached. So I showed you Iconium. Now let's go to verse 2 and 3. But the Jews who were disobedient stirred up and poisoned the minds of the Gentiles against the brothers. Bob. So they stayed there for a considerable time, speaking boldly for the Lord. What did I do? Before you move on, I had a question about the previous one. Yeah, that one. Sorry, I didn't know you are moving forward so quickly. Um, <laughs> in the verse 1, it says um, the phrase in such a way or in such a manner that large number of both Jews and Greeks believed. And I'm 
wondering how we should interpret that biblically because that could suggest certain techniques or certain ways to do things um, in terms of the gospel. I know that's not correct, but I don't know how to understand that. Very good question. Thank you, Christy, in such a manner. I believe, and we can discuss this, I believe Luke is reminding us of what's happened again and again. In other words, going all the way back to the day of Pentecost, how the preaching happened, and the preaching in other places, how the preaching happened in Samaria, how the preaching happened when the gospel finally went out to God-fearing Gentiles, household of Cornelius, how the preaching happened in Pisidian Antioch, Eric, you can comment on that, but the manner, such a manner would be the preaching of Christ, the gospel, and repentance. Yes, uh, Adam. It it seems to be saying just uh, how how they spoke, how they went about this, and the the result uh, of that. And so it's really nothing more than that, than uh, the result that was accomplished from uh, doing thus, uh, what what they uh, had had done. And so I I would think it's implied that it's similar to what happened before, because that's where the results come from, is the gospel. So it's not like the manner of their speaking, like it was flowery speech or something like that. No, it would be talking about the content... And when you have the word bold, parasia, you know, let me get this right, parasia zomai, being bold. I think if you look at that idea of parasia or boldness, you could see that. I didn't run a search of Luke Acts for that Greek, but that's how the gospels to be preached with boldness. I think that's right. So. In other words, they weren't suggesting that everybody could stay just the same and it was all right. Just four or five verses earlier in, in 1348 of Acts 2, it says, and as many as were appointed unto eternal life believed. And so just five verses earlier, it shows that the way people are saved is that God alone does it. Who believed? Well, it was the Gentiles who were appointed unto eternal life. So that shows us that it's God who saves and I think that is doubtful to change in just five verses later that it's dependent upon the uh, persuasiveness of speech in uh, Acts 14.1. So it's a good referent to keep in our mind that say, hey, he just pointed out that it's only of God. It's those who are appointed unto eternal life that believed. It's not through the persuasiveness of speech. By the way, the word bold shows up in verse 2. I'm looking at my Greek here. So I think we get that in verse 2. Uh, considerable time being bold, speaking boldly. The assumption is that's what they were always doing. Okay? And, in fact, I think we can see a little bit here. I got my Greek printed uh, printed out. Verse 2 says, having disobeyed, we can, boy, there's a lot to unpack here, but we've got a little time. Did you know that the gospel is something that calls for obedience. Did you know the Bible talks about being obedient to the faith? Eric and whoever else, if you have a cross-reference, feel free to find it. But 
the gospel. That gives us a clue, by the way, Christy, of what was said. And that would be presented in such a way that you either obeyed or disobeyed. Because those that disobeyed stirred up trouble. So the content implied by Luke is that you need to come to Christ and believe the gospel for forgiveness of sins. See, the long... By the way, just as we go through Luke Acts, remember, chapter 13 is the longest description of content. There's a lot of verses in chapter 13. And later, like here, Luke summarizes. In other words, every city he goes to doesn't get 52 verses. All right? And so the implication is, in such a way would be like he did where he just was. Go back there for the content. So we can get the narrative moving along. Keep this journey going on. Okay, so the content would be what we saw also in Pisidian Antioch. And then we see in the next verse, they were speaking boldly and that some disobeyed, so therefore there was a call to repent. Yes, Eric. A, a good passage, it's a good cross-reference for obedience to the gospel is Second uh, Thessalonians 1.8. My uh, nearsight, I think I'm getting farsighted here, so I'll try to read have you, this to you. Eric, have you ever heard of glasses? <laughs> I'm, I'm holding off, Bob. <laughs> Let's see, Second uh, Thessalonians 1.8. Well, I'll just begin in verse 6. It says, um, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is real, revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, this is verse 8, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. That, that's a great cross-reference. What was the verse where obey shows up again? Uh, this one uh, was Second Thessalonians 1.8. Second Thessalonians 1.8. Yeah. So the gospel, it's interesting that that terminology, obey the gospel, shows up. Because if you look at the seeker-sensitive church, um, you'll never hear anything like that. And in fact, I saw that in some of the material we had to study in missions and church growth and so on that I disagreed with, but I had to take to get the degree. Um, The the way the gospel, quote-unquote, is presented often would never make anybody think anything really had to change. They're just going to gain some personal benefit. In other words, find friends. Have a nice Christian environment for your children. Have less anxiety. Solve problems. How to be successful. How to do this and how to do that. And so you have what some have rightly called life enhancement preaching. And when you have this life enhancement preaching in order to fill buildings with lots of religious consumers, nothing is portrayed that needs to be obeyed or disobeyed. If you want to fill a building with religious consumers, you don't say you're wicked sinners, you're, you're lost, and... You need, you're disobeying God and you need to repent and believe Christ and you need to blood atonement because of God's wrath against sin in order to escape the coming judgment. You'll never ever do that. And I sat in those classes and I said 
We say we believe these things in our own statement. How are you going to preach them if you're going to have this kind of approach? And maybe you heard the story before. The missions teacher finally had it with me, and he went over to the chalkboard and banged his head against the board. <laughs> Response to, ah, Dway. <laughs> Kept asking these same pesky questions. So, when do we get to hear about the blood atonement? Yes, Brother Eric. I just, you know, I, I have to say about three weeks ago, we've been out of town, but I talked with a Presbyterian pastor about three weeks ago. He had attended an interfaith dialogue that I was at where a Muslim gentleman was talking about Islam, where talking about it's the same God, okay? We worship the same God and everything else. This Episcopal pastor raised his hand and said, you know, the word for God comes from the Dutch word got. <laughs> you know, and and I just couldn't stand it anymore. So I raised my hand and I said some things. And there's about thirty or forty people in the room. They all got mad at me, okay? Because I said, you know, the the Islamic word for Allah is is al ilya, and the and we know the word for God of the Bible is from the Hebrew. It's the the tetragrammaton, you know, the Yahweh. So I said this stuff, and they got mad at me. Okay, so then I went off for coffee with some people. And that same guy, I didn't know he was a pastor at the time, but I confronted him in this meeting, and like I say, it was an uproar. And I just said to everybody, calm down, you know. Um, But I talked later to that pastor. He was getting coffee, and I thought I'd try to extend a hand of fellowship. And again, I didn't know he was a pastor. So I said, hello, and I said, sorry, we got kind of excited at this interfaith dialogue meeting. And I said, you know, I just told him, you know, I tried to extend an olive branch. Turns out that's when he told me he was a pastor at this Presbyterian church. And I said, oh, I go to a church in St. Louis Park, you know, and we just preach the Bible. We teach the Bible. And he said, are you a welcoming church? And I said, well, what does that mean? And he said, well, you know, he said, our church is... We have rainbow colors, okay, you know, and all of that. It's the welcoming of the homosexuality. And I said, well, we just teach the Bible. You know, we, we, that's what we stick to is just the Bible. And then he said, well, what do you think about Jewish people then? You know, uh, do they need Jesus? And I said, well, yeah. I said, you know, it's, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And, and he got so angry angry he with He got me. angry with what he, Jesus And he said, said to me, he said, you are the kind of person that created the Holocaust. Now keep in mind, this guy was defending Muslims. And Hitler partic- was a neo-pagan. He wasn't a Christian. And, and so then he said to me, this conversation is over. And my last words to him was, I said, sir, you are an apostate. Okay? And I was so upset. I'm sorry. It was just awful. That's God a Presby- bless you. A Presbyterian they, pastor. I don't get why you call it church. Why, why don't you just say, I don't believe anything the Bible says, and I have a religion, and I'm not going to call it church anymore, because it really isn't. Ecclesia means called out ones. Oh, uh, Eric, I, I know exactly This is what a major denomination, you know? But see, they don't believe their... That's why creeds and councils don't work. Because they don't believe them, and there's no action taken they'll swear to anything they can to get a job in a religious atmosphere and after they're done swearing to it 
their fingers are crossed, and they go do whatever they want to do. And nobody will do one thing about it. Okay, dear ones, we're accountable. You got me fired up now, Eric. <laughs> I'm blaming you. Okay, listen. We're accountable to the word. Jesus said, John 12, 48, he who doesn't believe these signs that I do will have one that <clears throat> judges him in the last day, the very word that I spoke. And Jesus is the one who commanded us, the apostles to preach repentance for forgiveness of sins. The term welcome, they're being disingenuous. The, the Bible portrays the issue is whether people are willing to welcome the gospel. Okay? Jesus came, and they didn't welcome him. Why? Because they wanted their power and their authority and their religious status. And the people, the issue is whether we decomai, welcome, or paralabano, receive, whether we receive the truth of the gospel. But if you don't ever preach the truth of the gospel, how are you going to know if anybody is willing to welcome it? And we're not saying, I don't care how bad somebody's sin is, what they did, where they came from, who they are, they are offered forgiveness of sins if they'll repent and believe Christ. And God cleanses us. And it doesn't matter what our sin used to be, now in the church, we don't sin with a high hand. Here he talks about that. We accept what God says, but we can't exclude somebody based on what their sin used to be. <coughs> we offer forgiveness of sins, but you can't just say, stay the way you are, and you'll never hear anything here that makes you uncomfortable. Uh, yes. Not to pick on the Presbyterian Church, but there is one in Bloomington off of Old Shakopee that flies uh, rainbow colors and all. One day I saw they had a sign in their yard that said, Happy Ramadan. And I thought, oh, they don't know. Someone put those signs in their yard. And I, I called them up and I said, you know, just to let you know you've got those signs, someone must have placed them in your yard, Happy Ramadan. They said, we did. And I said, well, are you a Christian church? And they hung up on me. Uh, well, if you remember when I was preaching not long ago, I had stopped and taken a picture of a sign, and not, again, Presbyterian in this case, and the sign said in front of the church, we are the world. Remember I was preaching in First John? <laughs> we are not of the world. You might as well have the sign saying, we are not the church. What are you doing there? Why are you religious? If you want to be a pagan, go be a pagan. If you're not going to listen to Christ, you don't need forgiveness of sins, and you won't admit that God defines sin, and you want to do whatever you want to do, do it. I'm not saying you should, because it's immoral, but nobody's stopping you. But if you put the banner of Christ over such wickedness, you are facing the wrath of God in eternity. And when you tell them that, they say, we don't believe any coming judgment. Emergence had told me that. I was just going back to an example of boldness and obedience. Because in uh, Acts 4, it talks about 
John and Peter when they were before the rulers. And it, it, Peter had just said there's no salvation. There is salvation in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given to people that we must be saved by it. And it said that when they observed the boldness of Peter and John, they realized they were uneducated and untrained men, that, and they were amazed and recognized that they had been with Jesus. So the boldness. Right, and God can use anybody, trained or untrained. And then it, later on, it, they said, well, what are we going to do with these people? And they told them, well, you can't preach in that name anymore. And Peter and John both said, whether it's right in the sight of God for us to listen to you rather than God you decide, we're unable to stop speaking about what we've seen and heard. So you have the boldness and the obedience. Yeah, and they obey God rather than men. Praise God. Let me, let me, let's look forward here in, in Acts, a little preview. Acts, turn to Acts 19, 8 and 9. Acts 19, 8 and 9. I think that helps us interpret the verse we just saw, the one we're looking at here. Acts 14, we're looking at 1, 2, and 3. We want to know what it was they were preaching and what this boldness is about. Let's look. And we want to talk about what it means to be disobedient to the gospel. By the way, the gospel has moral content. It doesn't say be a good person and then God will accept you. It says you're already a sinner and you need Christ to forgive you and you need the blood atonement. To be accepted by God means to turn to Christ because he is the sinless one who died on behalf of sinners who believe in him. Acts 19, 8 and 9. So he entered into the synagogue and was speaking, there's our word, boldly for three months, discussing and attempting to convince them concerning the kingdom of God. Verse 9, but when some became hardened and were disobedient, reviling the way that meant Christian, Christian teaching, and the people that taught it, reviling the way before the congregation, he departed from them and took away the disciples, leading discussions every day in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. There is, again, what we're talking about here. Boldly proclaiming the truth, the king, the kingdom, by the way, you can't understand that if you don't know who the king is. Jesus is the king. If you want to be part of his kingdom, you have to repent and believe the gospel. If you trust in Jesus, the king, when he comes again, he'll receive you to himself and that you'll be eternally with him. And if somebody is so hardened, like what, what Brother Eric was saying was, if you're going to tell me about the unique claims of Christ, I'm done with you. Go away. Uh, they're not Christian. So why are they the pastor of a church if they're not a Christian? Yes. I, I After this whole thing, I, I thought to myself, did I do the right thing? You know, and I knew I did. I, I felt like I was doing the right thing. And I thought, okay, it was just absolute hostility. But I thought, you know what, at least I shook things up. You know? <laughs> and, and they're rejecting biblical truth. But at least we shook it up a little bit. Yeah. So I think that that's the right thing to yeah. do. The religion of our day says all paths lead to God. Quickly, we're, we're out of time here. Okay. I just want to say one thing. As far as 
the issue isn't how the word is pronounced. Uh, the, uh, the Arabic word for Allah is related uh, to different words that are used for God in the Bible. Same as uh, Akkadian, Ugaritic, they have El. And so the issue is who is God? Uh, right. The, the, the identification of who God is and where he, how and where he has revealed himself in the scriptures uh, yeah. through his son. Yeah, I was, that's the other what day I just had a, definite, a discussion with someone who's not a Christian at this point about Islam and their view of deity. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And one of the things I, I remember talking about, I don't know if I made up the idea, but when you talk about um, having a theistic worldview, it doesn't mean much until you define who's theo. But when you're talking about uh, Yahweh, the, the covenant-keeping God, and yeah. you, you elaborate on but who Islam he is, has a, that's, that's the central issue. has a version of monotheism, but it isn't their description and definition of God is totally unbiblical. And so then we don't really have anything in common. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for the fellowship of the saints, and we can talk about these things. Thank you for the dear ones as... as, as People here have gone out and told about Christ and the gospel. Thank you for that. Give us all that boldness we read about here that we may tell people the way of Christ. Thank you, Lord. And pray for Eric that you bless him as he preaches to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.